Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. I love fraud. Oh, don't take me out of context. You ready? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Thomas Brazil of 507 Capital Management. Thomas has got a specialization in some very unusual securities. He likes things in bankruptcy. He likes fraud. He likes something that's well off the run. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. How are you? So we've been having uh, some great conversation before we started. Um, and I hope that we can keep that going. Now, you're very I'll try. F- the the way that you, you uh, a, f- a mutual friend of ours, Toby Shirt, introduced us, uh, and he said yeah. you've got to read this story. And I remember Toby telling me about this in real time as it was happening. Uh, Ethnics Energy, can you take us through? Oh, really? That one? Yeah. What happened? Or maybe, maybe uh, it was maybe it was fun dot com. I think it, maybe it was fun dot com. Very let's, similar. Let's start with Ethnics Energy. Yeah. So. Uh, it's great to be on the program. It's fun. I'm glad you're doing the podcast. It's very cool. So I've been binge watching a few and uh, it's great to uh, chat in person or chat, you know, uh, to really chat. Um, so yeah, so I've always been in mission investing. I, I don't know where to start with FNX. I guess I'll, I'll, How did you find I'll it? yeah. So actually, believe it or not, FNX was on a net net screen and uh, I was, I was literally, I was in grad school at the time. And I was studying, believe it or not, quantitative finance, which has nothing to do, although I wouldn't say nothing to do, but because it's all kind of uh, about investing in, in, in business. But uh, so I was, I was supposed to be studying my quantitative finance. Instead, somehow I ended up picking up uh, the newest edition of securities analysis with the Fords by all the sort of current managers, which is fun, phenomenal. Um, and I had actually read securities analysis when I was like 19 or 18, but the long story short was I – I read like edition four with like all the coddle, uh, like they kind of ruined it because they gutted a lot of the, the grand philosophy in the middle. So you really want to lead the first two editions or you want to skip forward to the new edition, which, which is like hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you have to be a real nerd to like, sort of be like, Oh, the, the editions are different. You know, you need to... so anyway, they really are. Uh, I swear. Um, so anyway, so the newest edition, and so I read it and I was like, you know, I was like, it's just sort of blown away. And one of the things that there are so many great Graham stories in there. One is in sort of investing in liquidations and investing in litigations and like all these crazy things. You think like, wow, that's Graham. Everyone thinks you think Graham, you just think net net. You don't really think of all this color that he had on really doing special sit and, um, situation investing. And uh, so anyway, so I read the book and I was like, oh, you know, my parents are actually bankruptcy lawyers, not like big time bankruptcy lawyers, but they're bankruptcy lawyers. And I was like, I know a decent amount about bankruptcy. Like I'll start looking around at, you know, for, for stuff as it comes up. And I happened to come across, I was, you know, 
trolling on a net net screen. And one of the companies on there was a company that was bankrupt. And it was like a tiny market cap. I mean, really small, like $200,000, $150,000 market cap. So absolutely tiny. This is not for any managers. This is, this is, this is all for home gamers, I guess it's a term. So any home gamer out here. And there's stuff exists that you can – and that's one of the things I hope to get across in the arc of this, this conversation, which is I believe opportunity is everywhere. And this is a great vignette of that, I think. So um, so I found this company and, and I noticed it was in bankruptcy. I said, I know about bankruptcy. Why don't I try to research it and see if there's something here? So I, that's how it all started. That was the premise. So I started pulling over the bankruptcy docket. I don't know that much about uh, – at the time, I didn't know much as, as much as I do now about distress and bankruptcy and how things work. And the Chapter 7 liquidation, it was actually a no-asset case, which means that the recovery to the equity would be almost like just a very long shot. But when I was reading the uh, trustee reports, I was saying, oh, look at this. This is quite interesting. Like the recovery to the equity could be like just a tiny amount. And in fact, actually, because of the way the company was taken public, they actually have a pretty good lawsuit against uh, the former director, who was also their legal counsel. And... Um, and that helped them do basically the company had gone public through a reverse merger pipe deal. And the guy that had um, helped them with reverse merger pipe was a partner at McGuire Woods, like a large law firm. Um, you can Google him. And uh, he basically lined his own pockets by taking taking part in the reverse merger pipe deals with his own capital and then um, basically flipping the shares after the first day. Like and he sent out bogus opinion letters. Uh, with the McGuire Woods uh, stationery being like, yeah, you could take the legends off these guys' shares. They're good. Well, what he meant was good, but he meant his, his, his own vehicles were good. So that was the, that was the, uh, the fraud. Um, it actually worked really well. So he did about seven times. He never spent the money. I mean, he didn't spend maybe a little bit of it, but, but real recovery was the fact that he didn't spend any of the money, and then when they sued him, he had all the money. So um, that was a forfeiture action with the government. And so in that case, there were two two sources of recovery. One was, um, and this was all in the bankruptcy docket if you were able to crack it open, was that you could uh, get some recovery to the equity actually through these what are called restitution and remission payments on forfeiture actions. So if the government seizes uh, your nice telescope behind you because uh, you're a drug dealer and they've taken all your stuff away, and let's say that somehow you had a claim on that property because you know you defrauded me, I could actually get that telescope, and that's basically what what you do. You in these forfeiture cases, uh, this guy had defrauded the company, so they had a claim against him, and so um, they were able to actually through the short swing profit rules um, and uh, actually restitution payments for charging him for his legal services when really he was defrauding the company. They were able to 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 uh, to uh, demand money from the government seizure. He, he, he was charging for his fraudulent services. Yeah, that's great. You know, you get it coming and going. That's how, that's how, that's a real business there. I'm in the wrong business. That's smart. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so this guy, um, so that was one source of recovery, and that was like plain in the doc. Like you could have read what are called the trustee reports, and you know, chapter sevens are different than eleven. So chapter sevens are like a where there's a that's so you're Australian. In Australia, they call them administrations. In the states, we call them chapter seven liquidations. And basically, there's a trustee who comes in. He sits in the shoes of the manager and basically just liquidates out all the assets and tries to pay the creditors, uh, depending upon the pecking order, right? So you've had like secured creditors, preferential creditors, like wages and things like that, taxes, and then the very, 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 very bottom, the equity holders. Um, in this case, 
because of the restitution and remission payments, I knew from my purchase price, which was about a $200,000 market cap, and we were talking about the penny stock basically, that I was going to make four, five, six times my money, which I was like, whoa, are these numbers right? So, of course, I'm like calling the trustee and I'm like, you know, getting him to walk me through line by line. It's this accurate. It's this right. What's this? Now? What's this? What's this? And uh, the trustee didn't even understand what I, what's funny. And that's what I find interesting about opportunity in general is someone could be so close to the opportunity, but they don't have like the mindset because they're they're too busy, like keeping the whatever cap they've got on. Like this guy, he's like, I'm just a trustee, you know, like I don't know anything about buying bankruptcy claims or buying equity. I mean, he very well knew the story. He could have told his friend the story. And there's no – it wouldn't have been insider trading. He could have said, hey, you should really look at this bankruptcy case. This is a little public company, and there's stock that trades. you know. But he never did that. So this this trustee who's now a good friend of mine um, is uh, – didn't even – it didn't it, it didn't add it all up. Um, so anyway, so that was one source of recovery. And then the other big source of recovery was – uh, a lawsuit against McGuire Woods um, because you know partnerships are liable for the actions of their partners. So you can't throw somebody under the bus if they're literally a partner. Not only partner like Goldman Partners, There's no Goldman Partners anymore. It's a public company, but I mean like real partnerships. You know, Goldman was private, and those guys that claim that they're you know managing directors were actually partners, um, then they would be liable for their actions. Um, it's actually a good risk mitigation tool for Goldman, so it's probably good they went public. Um, so, uh, so those are the two sources of recovery. Um, if I was older and, and, and knew a lot more about distress like I do now, we could have really done well. But we, did, we still did very well. So I basically bought up about 10% of the stock in the public market, which wasn't a lot. I was broke. I was a college student. I wasn't broke, but I was like, not have, you know, I had, I had $10,000 basically to buy the stock. And then I also did you bought, file your 13 D? I did. I did. You did you really? I follow the rules. I follow my 13 D. Um, I follow my 13 D and 13 DAs, man. I mean, I was, I'm like, I'm on it. And I did it myself. I didn't pay 400 bucks for somebody else to do it. You should see it. The formatting is terrible. Handwritten. Uh, yeah. Handwritten. Actually, I bet you could do a handwritten one. I don't know how you'd file it though. Cause it's all the Edgar filing system. It's all electronic now, but maybe you could, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, totally terrible formatted, uh, terribly formatted. Um, but it's not that hard. You can, you know, but uh, so wait. So yeah, so I bought a public stock, I bought about 10% at about $200,000 valuation. And I also bought some restricted share blocks. So I actually have physical certificates that I bought off people, um, which was a lot of fun. Uh, so that kind of reminds me of the old Buffett story. And I can't remember what stock it was that he did this with. But I really felt, I mean, at the time, I was actually reading Snowball as well. And I remember of him going door to door, apparently, to buy some security. And it kind of reminded me of that story. So I felt good about it. I was like, oh, I'm just like Buffett. I feel so good. Uh, except for I, in the snowball, she says that he was breaking Williams Act rules. So I started searching Williams Act, and I was kind of worried that I might be breaking Williams Act rules. But she's actually wrong. You weren't, you, you, you can, the, 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 there's no anti solicitation for stock that's not, that's legend stock, because it's legend stock, it's restricted stock already. So it, it would only be anti-solicitation Williams Act rules if uh, it's like, you know, publicly traded stock. So if I said, hey, Toby, why don't you sell me your, I'm going to guess what stock you own. Let's see, Merlin. Let me, let me buy your Merlin. Oh, Merlin just got bought. So I think it's something else. Uh, let's think of a value stock. Um, so anyway, so that was a that was a fun case and i could give more color on it but that's that's the gist of it and it, so you bought you bought the shares some of the restricted stock that you bought was from including the chairman right of the 
of the now. I did. So the largest, I wonder if I can do a screen share of this. I can show you the certificate. So recently I actually had, I've been wanting to do this forever and I finally did it, which I had like a little tombstone made of the actual share certificate, which I love. And I haven't actually seen it because it's in New York, but I, like, I just, I'm just, Love the idea. If you send me the picture, we'll put it up on the uh, on the post. All right, all right, all right, all right. I'll send a photo. Uh, so he's the nicest guy ever. And I'll give you some of the story on this. So this guy, remember who this was? This was a ethanol company that was going public during the heady times of sort of alternative energy pre-financial crisis. So they were doing a reverse merger pipe deal. You know, pipes were big. You know, you get basically like, you know, these, you know. So anyway, so the reverse merger pipe and – this guy was like the industry guy for ethanol. So they made him the chairman and they gave him a bunch of stock and all this stuff. So he owned like 10% of the company, basically just to come in and add gravitas to the project. And so when this thing went sideways and this guy ended up defrauding the company, there was a big sort of, you know, this was a besmirch or whatever you'd say. This was a stain on this guy's reputation as someone in the industry. So he was more than happy to wash his hands of it. And uh, it was so funny. I remember calling him. His name was Robert C. Walter. So I call Robert up, picks up. He's kind of an older guy. And he says, you want this certificate? He's like, this certificate's worthless. Um, and I was, I, was like, I was like, well, you know, I think it's worth a little something. And I think the workout value could be, you know, over time, a few multiples of the mind. I was pretty straight with him. I mean, I didn't really go into litigation. But I said, you know, you could make some money on it. And he said, look. You, 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 you send me a contract. I'll see. I wrote my own contract. <laughs> Don't, this is not good advice, by the way. You shouldn't write your own contracts. I don't know that hindsight. I sent him a contract. He signed it. I sent him a certified check from Vanguard. <laughs> uh, check literally from my like, you know, Vanguard, uh, you know, from index your brokerage fund. Account. yeah, my brokerage account. Yeah, literally. That's what I did. I still have the check stubs. I'm sure I can pull those up. And uh, the guy thought I was nuts. And uh, I think my parents, even my parents are bankruptcy lawyers. My my mother, I remember speaking to her, she's like, are you sure you know what you're doing? And I was like, but look at the numbers and look at the workout value. And it all kind of adds up. I mean, you just have to follow the numbers. And uh, so she was, she was a bit incredulous, but she was like, all right, this is my son's money. Do what he wants. This is 20 grand, whatever. So I bought about $10,000 of stock. Might have been a little more than that. And then I bought like 25,000 ish of, uh, of secure, of, of, uh, restricted stock. Mostly it was Robert C. Walter. So that was a good one to, to snag. And I got that under a $200,000 valuation. So at the end of the day, the workout value was about six and a half million dollars, uh, of from like market cap workout. It could have been even higher, and, but, but the long story short is I bought them for, four cents, five cents, six cents. And the workout value was 92, 93 cents on the dollar. Wow. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a good one. But it, it was one of those things where, well, first of all, it did take two and a half years. So it's not like it happened overnight. And what's fun about it, and I, I was telling you this off, you know, off camera, but before we started and you're like, oh no, wait, is even though it took two and a half years, which you think, oh my God, you made 23 times your money in two and a half years. That's amazing. It's like, I still had to wait two and a half years because once I had bought, the fun thing about making a really good investment is you, I feel like you really do know pretty early on. You're like, oh, yep, that was good. Especially when it's like private deals versus public. I mean, stock, you know, you're buying from marginal sellers. So you're taking advantage of that dislocation of that marginal buyer and seller. 
uh, or supply and demand, whatever you want to call it. So, but in the private markets, normally when you ink a deal, like you kind of know, like right then, like, wow, that was good. So you kind of you kind of know right when you do it. You still have to wait because it's, it's private. You know, it doesn't matter how great you think you are. You have to wait till you actually get your cash out. So, so that in, so even though you you'd uh, you'd done quantitative uh, finance mathematics at Columbia, and that's that's your masters. You got this passion for um, these unusual bankruptcy, illiquid claims, um, distressed debt, distressed assets, and so now you've got. You've set up a firm, Five O Seven Capital Management. Yeah. Where does the what's the name? What's the Five O Seven mean? Okay, so Five O Seven, and I should say uh, the whole idea genesis of BE Capital, which was my former firm with another partner, and now Five O Seven, was to basically try to not institutionalize, but try to make a business out of finding stuff like that. You know, finding ethnexes. You know, more portfolio approach, but basically the, the idea is like stuff that just no one's bothered to look at. And, you know, try to be lean so you can be small and take advantage of it. So, yeah, 507 is actually the portion of the bankruptcy code that sets out the priority scheme. So I don't know if I told you this via email, but, yeah, basically it's the people that get paid first. So it's a little play on that. So whenever you call a bankruptcy attorney and you're like, oh, are you guys looking for – we do a lot of dip work, so debtor in possession loans and stuff. And uh, you're like, oh, you – you know, they're like, 507, what, like the priority code? You're like, yes. <laughs> they're like, oh, I get it. That's funny. So it's like a very inside, in, inside joke on a, only a bankruptcy attorney. Some, some believe it or not, some of the bankruptcy attorneys don't even know. <laughs> it's not as it, that, that no particular section of the uh, of the code is as important to them as that is to you. That's why they necessarily well, don't. They should because it, it lays out that they get paid like third. They, there's all the bankruptcy outside secured claims are uh, the price. So the five hundred seven is. The first people are uh, uh, child support, <laughs> and after child support, you know, most corporate bankruptcy don't have child support in there, but that's the priority scheme. You know, 507A1A is child support. 507A2A is like uh, domestic support obligations, so basically if you've had been divorced. And then number three is admin claims, and it's where the estate professionals get paid. So, right. Uh, actually, believe it or not, in one case, and actually, God, I could tell some hilarious stories. Um there is so 50 was it 50 cent or was it yeah i think it was 50 cent that filed no it wasn't 50 cent it was dmx filed for bankruptcy so dmx has had like nine children with like eight different women so he's got like he has debts all of his debts were domestic sport obligations <laughs> and i came we came this close to buying a domestic sport obligation you could actually technically buy them you know 507a2 you know domestic sport that would be great that would just because I'm trying to fill 507. I want to get one claim from every single ladder. <laughs> so it up. so the, 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 uh, the, the uh, investment that I was referring to before, I think I, I got a little confused. That the one that Toby Shute was telling me about, I think he was telling me about it in real time or maybe he was telling me slightly after the fact, but it was the fund.com investment. Yeah. So that was like a little different in the sense that like it wasn't as sure a thing as uh, as X. And I should say that like whenever I'm telling one of these stories, it's not like it's the only thing going on. So people, you know, could say, I mean, at the time, X really was all my money uh, because I really thought that um, you were sort of guaranteed to make a few times your money. And then the upside was you got the litigation for free. Um, 
but in, in fun.com was interesting. So fun.com was more than a penny stock. It was like a nano penny stock. I mean, it was just like it traded for literally pennies, you know, two, three cents or something. And, and well, I guess that's the next started that way as well. But, um, it was like a hundred thousand dollar market cap the company was basically dead. The guy that ran it was a fraudster. I mean, he, so, so that, that's part of the story. So fun.com was a company that was kind of basically as a pump and dump scheme. What they did is they basically inflated a fake balance sheet and then they used that fake balance sheet to buy real companies. Um, sounds, sounds a lot like other companies you might know. Uh, (laughs) that's a a legitimate strategy. That's a a completely legitimate strategy. You're you're like, yeah, you're like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that strategy? Um, uh, I won't, I won't cough and name any companies. Uh, so, so the the idea was a fake balance sheet by real companies and it was really smart. He actually say, Hey, Toby, you know, you're such a good guy. I got this company. It's got $30 million in asset value. You're such a good guy, you know, like, you know, that you're going to be in for the long haul with this and this investment. Why don't I sell you some stock at half a book value? And, you know, since you're such a good guy and you're going to help me out, like, you're, of course, going to buy if your clients are not actually going to buy it. Why don't I give you a little something, you know, just as a thank you? You know, it's, it's not a kickback. Well, it's kick, who said the word kickback? I'm just saying as a as a I would really appreciate that. And so that was the play. He would raise money with his fake balance sheet basically pitching to brokers like IRAs and whatnot. They get their clients in and then you give them a little something as well. So everybody's paying everybody and everybody's happy, of course, until the thing blows up. But the interesting thing is he made a few interesting investments. One of the things he either bought or sort of drove into the company was a, a domain called fun.com. Uh, that was basically the premise of the, of the whole company was it was gonna be a marketplace for everything investment related. So think of it as I think I I remember seeing an old deck about it when we finally got in, in, in control of the company. It basically said that it was going to be like a I can't remember if he referred to it as an Amazon, but he basically referred to it as like uh you know you know and uh everything you need to know or everything about investing is going to be on this website. So it's kind of like investing.com, but it's called fun.com. So he had a domain. He had invested in a um, ETF provider. I, I, I really I'll get took some color but I won't like you know go go in specifics but anybody really wants to can research it so there was an ETF provider that they that they owned a chunk of and there were a few other things so so at the time the stock was totally bombed out everybody knew the guy who ran it was a crook and they were like well what's the point of buying the equity I mean anything that comes into the business guys just gonna steal and I said all right well you know stranger things have happened you know, maybe something happens. Maybe I'll buy. Like, I'll just sit on the bid and get filled. So I sat on the bid for like two years and basically ended up owning like twenty percent of the company at like a hundred thousand dollar valuation. So literally, it was a twenty thousand dollar investment. Um, long story short, is I had tried a few things, activism things like books and records stuff, and uh, trying to kind of force uh, under Delaware corporate law some disclosure. Didn't get anywhere. And then something really interesting happened. The gentleman that was the kind of the control, the puppet master, this guy Jason Galanis, gets indicted. He gets indicted by the government, not in Fund.com, but in something else. Another fraud he's got. This guy, <laughs> this guy's like, you know, he's got frauds going on in every town. So there was this, believe it or not, Indian, like you know, American Indian, uh, Native American uh, bond scandal. Basically, they raised this money. 
for this uh, Indian tribe. And then, of course, the money was supposed to go to like build a casino or something. Instead, they were like, oh, yeah, well, we'll, we'll help you with this. We're the investment manager. We help you raise the money. But they never turned the money over to the Indians. They basically just kept it and spent it. <laughs> uh, so so he gets indicted for that. And then and the guy that I we kind of I kind of found the person that was sort of running the show, sort of sole director and sole CEO for this bombed out non-reporting OTC company. And I was like, what are you going to do? Like this guy's indicted. Like he's not going to be able to. And he was mum. He did not say that's an English term. He didn't. He was not talking. And eventually I was like, you know what, there's this curious, I'd read a bunch about Delaware code to kind of do this. And one of the things I had learned about was receivership. Like if you have a company that's basically been left for dead, you can appoint a receiver. It's very similar to like bankruptcy law. Like they have state receivership and, um, um, assigned for the benefit of creditor type stuff. It's very similar to like a state run bankruptcy almost, um, so anyway, so I just, I was like, hey, we should I should really go for receivership. This is the time. This guy's not going to respond. We're going to get it by default. So we literally went to Delaware, filed a receivership motion, and got appointed receiver. <laughs> you know what can I say? I mean, what's great as well is the guy that was running the company. This is what really happened. He stopped getting checks from Galanis, and when he stopped getting checks, he was like. Well, I don't work for free, and this guy's now in jail. Maybe I should just say, like, oh. It, so he actually filed a, uh, an affidavit in support of us being appointed <laughs> receiver, which is crazy. I mean, he was supposed to be running the company. So we, we, we get involved and become the receiver, and we start sort of marshalling assets. And there were two big assets. One uh, basically was uh, this ownership and this disputed ownership, because it was disputed how much they owed, of this um, – ETF provider. This and it wasn't a huge ETF provider. It was like a billion, two billion dollar even, which is a, sounds like a lot, but ETF margins are thin. Uh, as you might know if you've ever tried to launch. Did you? I don't know. Did you ever run across this company? I know. Ever... I know. I know who it is. Yeah, I know. That. It's, oh, okay, it's okay, Advisor okay. Shares. I know the company. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I'll tell. I'll give color without giving because I don't want anybody to get upset. But these are the facts. I mean, the facts were there was a dispute about how much they own there was a dispute about a capital call at the end of the day there was a settlement um we you know we were able to settle it and kind of like basically instead of the cap the cash just going to galanis who was now behind bars we basically had to come to our corporate bank accounts which now i controlled um so that was one source of recovery and another source of recovery was the domain itself which he had of course taking control of through a forbearance agreement because he claimed he had all this insider debt, which is really bogus. Um, and first of all, the, what, my favorite part about the debt piece is it was a $2 million piece of debt, but it had a, I think a 3% late fee per month. So basically like the, the rate was like, I don't even know, like 50% per year, like APR, which is of course usurious. And we got totally thrown out by the, the, the Delaware court. So, the receivership was, you know, the advisor shares recovery through settlement and then the selling of the domain. And that's you know, basically a few million bucks. I can't there, – there's there's trustee – there's basically receivership reports that are out there that say the numbers. But, you know, that's that's a few million bucks, $20,000 for 20% of the company. Not bad, you know. And there all the other people, you know, there, there were a number of people. And I, I know Toby. That's why I, Toby and I had talked about Fun.com over the years. Um, cause I was just like, it was always curious. And the whole, the whole premise of the investment was 
there's actually a lot of value here and it, maybe there's a way to you know good things can happen because there's a lot of value it's sort of like a rhyming theme said although it was very dark you know it wasn't there was no way a sure thing that uh you were gonna really make a killing on on the company in the same way that other things are more and that's a waiting thing that's like any portfolio you know it's like oh i'm not sure if this is gonna work but if it does, like I'm going to make a hundred times my money. So, okay, I can lose 2% of my portfolio or whatever you're comfortable with, 5%, 2%, 1%. It's like any sort of portfolio. One thing is as I get older, but also as I just try to think more logically about investing, like I think sometimes as investors were a bit too black and white and we're not willing to be wrong. And so I think it's important to remember that sort of, um, I don't know. You, I don't know what your thoughts are. No, I agree but completely. I, That's the, I think that if there are positions that are potentially zeros or massive payouts, then you size it like an option that could expire worthless yeah. but could have a very high payout, you, that, whatever that is for you, 1% or 5% or whatever. Right. And I also think it's a, it's a setup thing. Sometimes you see a setup because I think that's really your goal. Even in even in distress, I feel like the goal is like positioning and setup, position, position, position. So so much of it about positioning and finding those really awesome setups. And so much is like prognosticating about the future. Like, oh my God, like you know, phosphate's going to go to five thousand, and this that means the stock's going to fifty five hundred. You know, it's like he's prognosticating. I I don't disagree with people that do it, and I think there are just a million ways to make money in public and private markets in all kind of different areas. But I definitely think that uh, in securities markets, and in a lot of places, it's sometimes it's more about positioning more than influencing or being able to know the outcome with certainty. What, what do you mean by positioning? Oh, um, well, so for us in distress, it's like fulcrum security type stuff. So you're, you're trying really hard to like, okay, so let's take a case. You know, you've got, you know, a million of secured, and these are really small because we do some small cases. So let's say you got a million in secured and you've got 10 million, you got 5 million of unsecured, and then maybe you've got, well, I could walk it through a live case. You want to walk through a yeah, live case? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, that's more fun. Uh, I don't want to get in trouble with anybody. <laughs> so, uh, so the first ICO bankruptcy is this company called Gigawatt and uh, ICO, uh, initial coin offering. So, there, one of the main areas we actually work on now is crypto distress, believe it or not. It's a, not a hot area, but it's a hot area for us. Uh, because um, if, you believe, if you're someone that likes a space, um, the discounts are pretty huge. Now, of course, if crypto goes to zero and goes away and sort of it's not the future, then um, you're not looking at very good returns. But there are still ways to play it and get the optionality while staying safe, um, which is what we really try to do is – and, and that's something about positioning. So in one trade that we're working on, and I, um, I can't talk too much about it, but basically what we do is when we're buying bankruptcy claims in this one docket, we're basically buying something where if crypto goes to zero, we're okay with the IRR because of the state has other recoveries and the bankruptcy state has other recoveries that will allow us to make an okay return. You know, so like the, you know, I wouldn't say, I guess it's a Manish Pabrai, you know, sort of like, you know, heads I don't lose much and, you know, or heads I win a lot and tails I don't lose much. This is like actually heads I make a little 
or you know, uh, tail, tails I make a little and heads I wouldn't make a lot. Um, so so that's kind of stuff you can find not only in sort of crypto distress but in air, all areas of distress if you position yourself properly and 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 really think about the risk reward of every transaction. So 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 the one live example in in um, uh, in the states where there's, where there's basically the first uh, ICO bankruptcy is there's a little bit of secured debt. There's a, a decent amount of trade claim, uh, unsecured debt, which is big good trade claims, which is like a bread and butter business for us. Another is uh, customer account claims, and then you've got even tokens because they had an ICO. So what are tokens? Oh, geez. So, so it's it's complicated, right? But if you think about if you have an idea about what the value of the business is, and you get healthy healthy discounts to that, and position yourself so that maybe you own a little bit of the top tier, like maybe a little bit of the secured to make sure if things really go south, you're going to cover, you know, you're going to be able to be there and kind of own that. And then at the same time, you know, you're kind of layering further down. Maybe you want to own some tokens. Maybe you want to own some GUC, some general secured claims. I think the same thing, I guess our guys will do like structured credit stuff where they're like long the bonds and like they're using the, the coupon of the bond to basically be long the equity or to lever up on the warrants or something like that. And I think one of the nice things about the stress, and we were talking before we got on, is um, disciplines in investing. I think that the stress is really cool because it teaches you the discipline of the whole capital stack and being really creative about how you think about it. Something Sometimes the thing about when you're just looking at stocks, you kind of get really kind of like, uh, it's only one permutation, which is the stock. But when you've got distress, or it, it makes you think of like the whole cap stack. Where do I want to be? What's the best risk reward on GE right now? Is it the bonds? Is it the equity? Is it so? So you, when you get distress, it gets even more interesting. You, you know, uh, you're California, okay? Uh, PG&E, big bankruptcy case, right? Where do you want to be in the cap stack? You want to be in the bonds? You want to be in the equity? There's trade claims you can buy. There's mechanics liens you can buy. There's all kind of and so that to me is 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 really fun. Um, um, but anyway, did you? Not sure what the question was. Did you? No, that was good. You were just you're you're talking about. Uh, you, well, we we started out about fun.com, but it, uh, did you discover the crypto opportunity through Mount Gox? Uh, that was yes. So that's something we work on. Yes. So you're can just you? Like, can, can yeah, you, I can. Yeah. Can you tell us the Mount Gox story? So, oh gosh, this is going to sound mean. Okay, so I was reading in the FT how some hedge funds were trying to buy Mt. Gox. This was like three or four years ago, like Mt. Gox claims. And I was What's like, Mt. Gox? So Mt. Gox was the largest um, bankruptcy. No, it's the largest bankruptcy. It was the largest uh, crypto exchange before it went bankrupt. And what happened was basically three-fourths of the tokens just disappeared. Tokens, uh, Bitcoin disappeared so um of course people were very upset uh, but at the time crypto was only at about 400 450 us dollars to to one bitcoin so when you you know when you have 25 percent of the coins left but then crypto 10x is on you that's 100 percent repay case uh and so i but i was actually buying when crypto was like a thousand so it was i was making doubles on the claims i was buying uh for at the time be um you know for my fund and um uh i read i read so i read in the ft that some some hedge funds were looking at this and i was like i know a lot of the guys that buy this stuff 
like you know that work in sort of bankruptcy treatment i'm like they're not super smart i bet i could figure this out so so i started poking around and papering the first one was really hard i think that's that's something about like opportunities everywhere it's people say like oh you know like oh i don't know how to do like uh, bankruptcy foreclosure on a on a on a or a private mortgage. I don't know how to do it. It's like, of course you don't know how to do it. Like you have you have to just kind of push the boat out and learn a little bit. I'm not you know don't risk your whole life savings. But so in the area we work in or I work in, I feel like the hardest thing is papering stuff. So people will say things like, oh, how do you get comfortable with this transaction? And be like, well. We do it through spending first our whole lives trying to paper stuff and figure out how to paper it securely, but also like um, months and months on a deal is basically figuring out how to paper it so that you're secured, not secured in like the, the, the secured debt sense, but secured in the sense of like there's no slippage between what opportunity you want to, or exposure you want and like just having a papering bumble so that you, you know, somebody walks off with your money or something. So so, uh, so let's see. So yeah, so I read an FT. I was surprised. I was like, I know people do this stuff. I should say is one thing when I was running uh, BE Capital, it was quite a small fund. So once I filled myself up, we were always trying to like, you know, we were kind of working for larger uh, distressed firms and hedge funds. And the, uh, I don't know if it's a scary secret, but one of the funny secrets about distress is like most of these guys find stuff through other means, right? There's all these brokers and stuff. And so so we were we sometimes were working for some very large and well-known people, and uh, and uh, so I started sniffing around Mount Cox, and I was like, I know people that broker this stuff. They don't know what they're doing. I'm going to look at this. So I started looking at it. Was able to paper a transaction. Took a minute to do. Luckily, what does first- papering mean? Papering is like okay. So when you buy a stock, it's like all figured out for you. Like you don't have to do anything. I mean, you're just like, boop. Okay, that was easy. All right, now lunchtime, everybody. I'm just <laughs> bye. I decided to buy some uh, some stack today. No, but when you're when you're buying a claim or you're doing something um, in the private markets, you get to paper the whole thing. So papering is the contracts, right, and the agreements. So for instance, at Mount Gox, like we weren't really sure how to paper it. You know, we had to make sure we had to do we have escrow. What does the contract need to say? What are the representation warranties in the contracts? How do you actually transfer the claim? I mean, it's Japan. I mean, everything's in Japanese. Um, luckily, everything's in half English and half Japanese. And uh, or it's in both. It's in dual language. So um, I was able to get it done and work through that. And uh, that in and of itself is super valuable for these trades, like knowing how to construct and manage that risk as part of um, as part of the, tr- the transactions you're doing. Because you know maybe no one's done a deal in Latvia. Maybe no one's done a deal in Poland or, or in on this kind of transaction, maybe there's transferability issues and you need to figure that out and how to work around it. Maybe there's US law sanctions against doing it and you need to find ways that are totally legal. So it's a paper. You, you don't so want to commit any light treason. Yeah, light, light treason. I always like that phrase. I might have committed a little light treason. Is there such a thing? Um, so, so it's real. I mean, you need to spend a lot of time on that and that's not the majority of the time, but I would say that that's where the real creativity comes in because, you know, if I told you, if you work through the analysis of a workout, because that's what these really are, all these kind of things are really a lot of workouts, you're like, oh my God, that's it? That's so simple. You're like, yes, of course it's simple because I've done all the work for you and 
you got to be able to paper it and like, you know, and, and manage the risk of transferring with it and uh, transacting in it. And also you, uh, you have to be able to source it. You know, the whole sourcing is a real thing. You know, again, you can't call up Fidelity and be like, buy me some, I don't know, whatever you own. <laughs> Give know. me some distressed debt. Yeah. So you have to be able to source it. And the sourcing is a big part of it. The sourcing and papering are, are harder than the actual analysis, I think. So I've noticed um, on your yeah, website, the 507 website has uh, a way that you can submit your your claims. You can submit oh, yeah. some distress. Do, do you get any? Do you get any leads that way? Nah. So how I mean, do you yeah. source it? <laughs> uh, how do you source it? Um, um, I actually think there are. I really believe that there are opportunities everywhere, and you have to constantly keep. A late you, on one level you need to be focused because you're trying to like work on your ideas and do deep meaningful work on whatever you're searching but on another you kind of need to have open right to your antennas up always to like you're walking by a construction site and you're like huh these guys haven't been here for two weeks i wonder why construction has stopped google the address oh there's a work shut down because it was like i don't know some issue they've run out of money Oh, they run out of money. Oh, do they file for bankruptcy? Oh, who are the lenders? Who are the who are the actual investors? You know, maybe there's an opportunity here. Um, once in New York, I was walking by uh, basically a parking lot that they had turned into like a shop, like an outdoor shop, Bing Mall, but it was all kind of like very slapdash. And they got shut down by the city because they weren't following all these ordinances. You can't just like start setting up shops. Like you have to have like all, all these codes in place. And so all these renters now had potential claims against the landlord i'm like ooh, new york city real estate claims against new york city real estate mm, i like that idea so so i tr i tried to get in touch with some of the shop owners i mean it was very small stuff you're talking with people that owe that were owed like ten thousand dollars and stuff like that but that's an opportunity um and so i really think that you know you can read the paper um you can connect them with professionals in the space of course is great so if you think of just like in the same way that you find stock ideas, you'd want to connect them with emerging managers and people are doing good work and you're just like, hey, what are you working on? What are you working on? Are you full on anything? Tell me about your good stuff. So that's great. The same way with us, it's like, hey, what are you working on? What's too small? What's too weird? What can't you do? Like, you know, we'll, we'll look at it. So network is super important. Of course, uh, literally just reading the paper and trying to follow the stress opportunities that way. Those are really the two primary things. You very rarely get inbound stuff, although you do. Once you start getting your name out there, you do get inbounds, um, and that's reputation and really network. Uh, but you don't, you don't like, you know, have Facebook uh, ads or Google ads for for inbound transactions. Um, there was a there was a company in Australia that, uh, or it was just a, a website. Uh, I forget the name of it, but the idea of it was if you got yeah. close to tax time and you had these companies that had been delisted, I think it was called delisted.com.au. It might still be, might still be oh, there. Oh, I love this idea. You know, delisted. <laughs> so, yeah. So, no, no, no. It was even less than that. That's they a great they idea. said, you pay us $250 <laughs> filing fee and. And oh. and that and that included like whatever we're just going to pay some nominal sum for your shares and you transfer them to us. But the advantage right. for you is you now have locked in your your taxable yeah. loss yeah. for the yeah. end of the tax yeah. year. So now you can make a claim because often what happens with these things is they just go into this not not interminable, but they go into these very long. You know, like you were saying before, two yeah. or three years, and you want the you want to be able to make your tax claim as soon as you possibly can, the time value of money, so. Totally. 
And I often thought that is a great way to collect the whole of this equity. And I'll bet that 95% of it is totally worthless. And I'll bet that 5% of it actually pays off. Yep. So we need to buy that business. So we have, we have an idea right there. There's an idea. Let's call those guys and see if they want to sell. Um, and or replicate if they don't want to sell that's easy we'll just replicate their business well, you can repli- you don't you don't need to you don't need to replicate it in in the dot com dot au you replicate it in the dot com so you know uh with interactive brokers who i love dearly so i won't say anything bad about it. i'm not you know, so i'm only I'm, I'm from the south we only say things nice about people they like they when you have stocks like that they'll you can sell them to them for a dollar which i always think is a fun and I'm always like, oh, I wish I'm going to sign that trade. Because in general, there's some guys in the bankruptcy space who have done something similar like that with corporate assets, where like they'll basically buy a whole corporate, like them in assets for like nothing, like five thousand dollars. And I mean, these, you know, nothing in the sense of like if you bought a whole portfolio and you had millions of dollars of these. And I mean, they've crushed it. It was such a great idea. And it's that same idea of like buying really, really, really cheap optionality. And again, more than 80, I don't know what the percentages are, but a lot of it is trash. But, you know, for them, there's a lot of like what's called a sheet of property, which is basically unclaimed uh, utility bill, metered returns and and refunds and things that come to corporations that have tons of locations. Um, Then they got Visa MasterCard litigation in those those remnant assets, which is great. And um, yeah, so... I'm big into, yeah. So, what's your what's your overriding sort of philosophy? I, I think that there are two th- two principles. One is that you're you're yeah, prepared to look, you're prepared to look anywhere. You've got to be very open to where you could find yeah. any of these possibilities. The other one is well, there's maybe there's three. That position is very important. You want to be in the right place to make sure you've got some leverage or you've got the payoff. You've got some return possibility. And the right. third is just to be alive or aware of the possibilities for that optionality where you could have a very large payout and then to buy, sort of buy the steak get the sizzle for free that's it that's all that's all investing is buy a steak get some sizzle for free i mean i think that there's a lot of steak out there where it's like it's just steak I mean, there ain't no sizzle coming. I mean, this is a kind of a beaten up company and the returns on vested capital are super low. And it's like, you can make money doing it, especially as a portfolio and, and whatnot. But but the really interesting ones are where you can kind of get some sizzle along with the stake. And the stake is basically, the stake, the stake is the price, right? So it's it's all price driven. You know, you sort of like, but if you have again, like you know, crypto distress is interesting because you're getting distressed pricing and you're getting a real stake because you've got a state value above what you're paying. So again, it's very price dependent, and then you get this big sizzle for free. Um, and you could say the same thing in a lot of, um, you know, like you know, you buy a liquidation, you get some lawsuits for free. That's great. You know, again, stake and sizzle. So um, I, I guess the more technical way to say it is you're looking for. Um, cheap optionality or free optionality or free options and things like that to talk about. Um, I, I think it's better to not dress it up too much because I'm, I'm I guess I'm a quite a reverent person. I like to joke around, but I think that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, I mean, keep, keep your eyes open for opportunity everywhere. And, uh, yeah, I, I do think though that cheap optionality is probably the overarching theme if it was really going to, 
um, cheaper free optionality because you don't know outcomes. The outcomes you don't know. I mean, right. I don't know. You just, I, 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 I'm very skeptical of people that have top down or thematic sort of uh, views on stuff. How how, of, how how many positions do you have in the portfolio at any one time? How much stuff are you tracking? So yeah, so uh, I used to run a, an investment firm, which is BE Capital, and or a fund. And uh, now with 507, we're really just running family office money. Um, we have two really good clients, and that's it. So we don't have a fund. So if there's nothing to do today, there's nothing to do, which I have to say I love. I love not having to do anything. Not not doing anything like I don't want to work, but not doing anything like if there's just nothing that interesting. It's like you talk to your client. They're like, eh, Tom, I don't know. I don't think this is that interesting. You're like, yeah, you're probably right. And you move on. As opposed to with a fund, it's like, oh, well, I've got all this money. i got to put it to work. i got to keep finding ideas. I've got to stay on the treadmill. So um, I think the, that's the – I always think – you know, it's interesting you talk about – and I think some of your podcast guests were talking about some of this, which is like, you know, doing something different than the herd and all this stuff. And definitely think that's true, right? Contrarian is so important. But sometimes it's like we paint ourselves in a – we put ourselves in a box as investors because we sort of get trapped by that same um, got to perform every year, you know, got to, got to perform every quarter, got to, uh, got to be diversified by a certain amount, you know? So it's like all these boxes that you're checking and they, they that's okay. You can still outperform, but it's not going to, you, you, there's a given, there's a given to get there. So. Well, I think that that's uh, that, that I, I like that sentiment. I, I think it's, and I think it's well expressed. Um, but I think we're coming up on time. So if, oh, uh, man. I, if, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to uh, do that? I mean, you can email me. I think my email is on my website, but it's just Tom at 507capital.com. And uh, we love inbound. So uh, <laughs> you know, if someone's got something really weird that they can't figure out or they think is interesting, uh, you know, fill up on it and call us. Uh, and we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Sure. Uh, Thomas Brazel, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thanks, Toby. Cue the music. (laughs) (laughs) I love your music, by the way. Thank you.